there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including new magazine-style stories on the Spanish TV show El Chiringuito and this weekend's MLS Cup final. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. Gift subscriptions are also available. I'm here in Portland, Oregon with Chris Whittingham. We both made the trip. In segment one of this episode will be us discussing New York City winning the MLS Cup final over the Portland Timbers on penalties. Then the rest of the podcast will be devoted to interviews about a book and a film on Liverpool FC's English title winning season of 2019-20. Michael McCambridge and Neil Atkinson will discuss their book, Red Letters. And James Erskine will talk about his film, The End of the Storm. Let's bring in Witty. How are you, my man? We came all the way to Portland, and I think it was just for that 94th minute equalizer <laughs> and the sound that emanated from this stadium. I have to be honest, I, by the end, I was slightly disappointed that Portland couldn't add to those jubilant scenes, but wow, that one moment lived up to every bit of billing you could have hoped for. Honestly, one of the great moments I've ever seen in an MLS Cup final. Uh, I've been lucky to be to a lot of these. I think this is my 19th. I know this is your first, so that's awesome. And you got started on a great note, I think, because the atmosphere here in Portland was just absolutely incredible. I like that the MLS uh, uh, Cup Final got changed a few years ago so that one of the teams is the home team, uh, and that's earned in the regular season, and it's made for some just amazing scenes over the years and i would argue that portland oregon really is soccer city usa i think this is the most intense soccer city in the united states and they showed that today they left disappointed though but like that moment when felipe mora's goal really on the last kick of regulation equalized the score uh just really need to be here for that and then give a ton of credit to New York City for the way they responded to what must have been a gut punch just seconds from winning the title and having to play 30 minutes of extra time and then win on penalties Sean Johnson coming up big with two saves yeah I mean obviously the shootout is what decides it, but I was really impressed with New York City, particularly in the second period of extra time, because I think in the first period you just see waves and waves of momentum, forward pressure coming from the Timbers. I was actually going to leave here pretty disappointed because the Timbers, I thought, gave so little in the first 90 minutes of the game that it didn't allow the crowd to really get behind them. There weren't moments where you see, like, I watch the Timbers a lot on television, and you recognize the moments that the crowd getting behind the team is what's lifting them, is what's pushing them forward, and that didn't really happen today for 88 to 90 minutes. Then they get the equalizing goal. That first period of extra time, you thought for sure Portland was going to get something just because of how much pressure and how much was behind them, but New York City withstood it, and then there was one passage in play. It was odd because it led down to the best chance of extra time down the other end. A great shot from Christian Paredes that Sean Johnson produced another good save on. Probably one that gets forgotten because he saved a couple of penalties. But there was like a, oh, I want to say like a 20-pass move that New York City has. It leads to a uh, Trayvon Gray cross into the penalty area. And for me, it was a recognition and an encapsulation of how good New York City were on the day. Because New York City, I thought, for the first 90 minutes of the game, played with such an amount of quality that, frankly, you just don't see in big MLS matches often enough, where New York City 
They had ideas to play. The fullbacks push forward. There's spaces that open up. Maxi Morales dictated the game, but he was allowed to because of the space. And that move for me encapsulated New York City's response. They got back into the game. And then in penalties, it's a lottery. And once you make the first and the other team has their first saved, then you're, you're away. You're in the driver's seat. And they uh, eventually made that advantage tell and won the league. Yeah. I mean, we had Sean Johnson on the podcast this week. Uh, ahead of the final talking about things and how his leadership role has changed. He just became captain this year, and I think this was a real test for him today as the captain to rally guys because emotionally that's just such a swing right at the end of regulation to give up the equalizer and and then to back it up, Johnson did with his performance Um, the save you mentioned, and also the two saves on the penalties. Uh, He's a player that maybe doesn't get celebrated a lot in American soccer, but he's a real leader. And and so having gotten to know him a little bit, this is a big moment for him in his career to come up big, to win a title. And I think he's an important guy, maybe an unsung guy inside the U.S. men's national team as one of the few older guys. He's 32 who's a leader inside that team and the number three goalkeeper, right, is not a guy that gets a lot of action on the national team, but I think he brings something to that U.S. team that we, he brings even more of probably to New York City. Yeah, I mean, you look at for the U.S., Ethan Horvath has done a lot more in terms like he won the Nations League and yet Sean Johnson gets the call-ins. Like maybe part of that is travel, but the other part of is what you mentioned, that kind of off-the-field dynamic that he brings into the U.S. men's national team. But for this team today, that's a lot to handle. The game was pretty testy throughout the 90. There were a lot of moments where we're looking at each other in the press in the press box going, when are the yellow cards coming? There's a lot of challenges, a lot of needle in the game. From a leadership standpoint, you've got to settle your team down. And then not only to give up the equalizer, but it'd be fairly controversial because a lot of what I read on social media, Mark Clattenburg on the ESPN or the ABC broadcast said that he thought that that should have been a foul. And there was huge arguments after the final whistle with the referee between the management staff and the leaders on the team. You've got to settle your team down after that moment. And as I mentioned, that first period of extra time was a bit ropey for NYCFC, but they managed to find their footing. They managed to, in that second 15 minutes, put together decent performance and set up the penalties. But there's a lot of moments where you get tested, and I cannot think of a bigger one than you are literally one clearance away from winning the title and then having to find a physical and mental reservoir of energy to go again. By the way, I'm going to go on a little digression here on Mark Clattenburg. One, I kind of wish Mark Clattenburg, if he thought that, was refereeing this game because I would have loved to see him make that call and then try to get out of the city of Portland (laughs) after disallowing that goal. But the other thing being, there's a subplot here because Clattenburg in his book not long ago, which he's done interviews about, talked about he's not friends with Howard Webb, who runs Pro, Interesting. which is the the referee group that works all the games in, in MLS. And I, part of me wonders a little bit if Clattenburg <laughs> just gets a little bit of a, I don't know, a, 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 a you know, positive thing thing out of like needling Howard Webb's <laughs> pro just a little bit but you never know um, yeah it's one of those where like can you imagine if VAR flags up after that moment <laughs> hey we're going to review and disallow this euphoric moment for a bit of contact I mean the, the arm was high from Larry Smabiala you can understand maybe in other contexts it's a foul but just felt like one of those where it's like, you can't decide the league title on that 
True. Um, but I, you know, I think you're right. I think in the, in the first 90, New York city, I thought was the better team. And yep. so if they had won in 90, I would have felt like they deserved it. A little disappointed with the way Portland played for large portions of the 90. We talked about you know, sitting next to each other, watching the game. Dirona Spria was brutal in yep. this game. Just not good at all. Uh, a little surprising for me that Moreno hadn't started. Uh, and so that's maybe a little bit on Gio Savarese, but, um, just in general, I didn't think Portland created that many chances. And, you know, I, I guess I was just a little bit disappointed and surprised by that. Yeah, especially in this building on such a euphoric day for the city, you would have thought that they, were, they would be the team that would come flying out, press their opposition, you know, create the transition moments that they thrive in, but they didn't. It was New York City who... It's funny because very often when coaches talk about taking the sting out of a crowd, taking the sting out of the occasion you do so defensively by bunkering and denying teams chances and but new york city did with possession and over and over again in in transition moments they always made the pass that allowed the move to continue and get further and further into the opposition half and you also just had moments where it felt like NYCFC was playing through them. They were playing their game. It didn't matter where the game was. It didn't matter the occasion. They were just sticking to to their identity and how they've gotten to this point. And I think it's really impressive to do that on that kind of an occasion. They probably didn't create enough good chances in the first half based off of the quality of that performance. They get the goal from a set piece, probably one that Steve Clark could have done better with yeah. in the Portland goal. But you're right. I think in the overall... The way that Portland didn't really show up to play very much, and it was very much all of their changes. I think, you know, in a, in a three-sub world, I'm not sure that Portland gets that equalizing goal because I think it took all of Nias Goda and Valeri and Moreno and Paredes. I thought Paredes, when he came on, was a significant upgrade over George Fashive in the middle, and you're kind of surprised why Paredes didn't start the game. But all of those changes, I thought, allowed everyone else to play at their best. And I have to be honest... This is the first time I ever watched Diego Chara play in person. What an absolute joy. Because New York City can kill the game with Jesus Medina one-on-one in on goal and a 35-year-old holding midfield player backtracks, covers the ground, wins the ball back. There was a couple of occasions where Portland are committing numbers forward. Chara has to put out the fire. And ultimately, every fire put out allows Portland the opportunity to get back into the game. I, I do think there's types of players that seeing them in person you get an even higher level of respect than you get for them watching them on TV. And I think Diego Chara is one of those types of players because he covers so much ground, still got so much energy at his age and influences games. I'm also just glad that my hands are getting warmer right now, Chris, <laughs> because they've been cold and not functioning as I've tried to type during the We weren't the game. planning on recording this podcast, but we found a room with a heater. So it's like, well, as long as we're here... <laughs> Let's just put our hands over the heater and talk a little bit about the game we were just at. <laughs> yeah, we're still in the stadium here right now. But, uh, you know, it's another point, I guess, that we made talking to each other during the game was the front four players for both teams, all South Americans. Yeah. Which I I think that there was a bit of shithousery in this game uh, <laughs> that we talked about, which might be connected to that. Felt a little bit like a Libertadores game to an extent. In a fun way, mostly. And it also, too, that New York City, they they remind me of a good South American team, especially in the way that they attack, the way they combine. And, you know, it's not just 
young guys. It's mostly young guys on the way up, but Maxi Morales is in his 30s. Yeah. And he's terrific. The two center backs I thought were amazing as well. Chano and Alexander Collins that played their role. Fredo Morales in central midfield. I was actually thinking like towards the end of the game because we, we have MVP votes when we were in the press box. I was actually kind of thinking about giving it to Alfredo Morales. That's like mm. to me like how much he dominated midfield at times. But yeah, I mean, in the end, you have to give it to Sean Johnson. But yeah, I mean, New York, it's a perfect blend because you have a center forward who's a golden boot winner who scores, you know, both a penalty and a goal in, in regular time. He's young. He's going to get sold. It's been reported, you know, there's a $10 million price tag on him. That's what the City Football Group wants out of this club. But also use your extensive scouting network to find great pros to fill out this team. And that's exactly what they've done. And they did it without Anton Tinnerholm at right back, who's been a really key player for them, without Keaton Parks in central midfield, who I thought has been uh, exceptional over the course of the last couple seasons for NYCFC. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they, they are an incredibly well-built team. I'm curious to see how much how many of the young South Americans stick around. Does Tati Castellano stick around? He's 23, Golden Boot winner, wants to go to Europe, probably will have some interest, uh, and performed well in this game if it was his last MLS game. We'll see. Um, and then, yeah, Jesus Medina, I thought, was off in this game, missed the big opportunity. Uh, Santi Rodriguez, I thought was pretty good at times. I think he's had a good postseason. Um, they've got some interesting players. Talos Magno came on, uh, converted a penalty, you know, for a young guy who's still a teenager, scoring the goal that got them here. You know, that's exciting. You know? And they've spent money. And so, like, I do think there's definitely been a switch in strategy with New York City in recent years where signing Frank Lampard and David Villa and Andrea Pirlo got discarded. They didn't win anything. And instead, you had the the might of the city football group data analysis network really identifying guys who've been, you know, they're not huge names yet, but like they could be someday. And that's more of the modern blueprint to winning an MLS, whether it's, you know, Atlanta United did something similar. And so, yeah, I'm impressed with what New York City's done. And also it's worth pointing out, first MLS Cup title ever by a team from New York. That's crazy. Which in 26 years, it had never happened before. If you're a Red Bulls fan right now, by the way, how upset are you that your team just doesn't even seem to be that close to winning an MLS Cup title? And here in New York City has done it. And yeah, it's it's a weird one. But like, you know, like I would argue this. I'm going to write about this to an extent in my written piece that comes out tomorrow morning is MLS as a league was designed to be a corrective to the New York Cosmos and their absolute domination of the NASL, which ultimately led to the league going out of business because other teams spent themselves out of business trying to compete with the Cosmos. So MLS has salary caps. MLS has all of these things in place, single entity ownership. And it almost worked against New York. You couldn't recreate the Cosmos in New York. And there were so many horrible years for the Metro Stars and the Red Bulls. And in New York City seemed to have kind of like gotten touched by the curse as well. That's over. Yeah. And New York has, you know, the, the NYCFC, I should say, since year one, have been a fairly remarkably well-run club. But yet, I don't think they have that kind of relevance that I think a lot of MLS fans and obviously the league itself would want. 
I think at least in part because the players that they're signing now are not about it's not about big names it's not about your Vias and your Lampards and your Pirlos it's about getting young guys in that win golden boots that you can sell for more money than what you paid and using your scouting network in some ways I do think that the two New York clubs are fairly are fairly similarly run now I just think NYCFC have been more backed by the City Football Group than the New York Red Bulls have been by the Red Bull Group. Uh, when you look at you know money paid for outgoing transfers and all that, and look, ahead of the season, Ronnie Dyla did talk about we need some more. We're about to go into the Champions League. We're about to, you know, embark on, you know, our hope is to win MLS Cup. We need more. And they they backed Ronnie Dyla. They put some resources into this team. And I think the idea for these two teams is to bring through maybe not like the top tier South American prospects will go straight to Europe and into big clubs like your Vinicius juniors but that next tier can come into MLS make real impacts and then get sold on that I think for me is the future of those two clubs uh, it's just you have to have the confidence of, of, of your supporters base I think the two New York teams between a combination of their locations how they've been run I don't think have the cultural relevance that I think the league would hope for, but hopefully winning a league title, maybe it you know increase the momentum to get NYCFC a stadium. That's been a lot of the talk this week in the build-up to this MLS Cup final, but man, I just feel like these two clubs have such big potential. City, though, appear to be closer to maximizing it. Yeah, I live in New York City, and I'm very curious to see how much relevance, if any, is gained by New York City winning this MLS title. I don't even know. Like, I assume they'll have a parade of some sort, but like, if are they going to go down the canyon of heroes like other New York pro sports teams would? Is there are there going like if they did, are there going to be enough people <laughs> to attend? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, and so, I will say the traveling support today was tremendous. It was good. We were we were right above them in our press area. I, I was I affectionately call it the gantry here at, uh, at Providence Park. So we're right above them. So I I left the I left the press box so that I can kind of see them. And they I, like you saw fans in there that had tears in their eyes. Like it was a genuinely emotional moment. There are fans that have been on a journey. They've you know this year on a couple of occasions have been asked to go to Red Bull Arena when they don't want to go there. Uh, the, the the fans have backed this team. The, the fans that have been here and have been going to games have really backed this team. When at times it, you know it's been hard. Like you want to have your own home. Yankee Stadium has been shared with the Yankees. Uh, you're kind of hoping every time a new report comes out that it's a bit more optimistic that your team can work with the government to put together a stadium situation. It's pretty damn hard in New York. Um, and then, uh, you know, you, next year, uh, it, you know, it's been reported that they're going to go and play most of the games in Yankee Stadium, but also partly in City Field. So that you're not going to Red Bull Arena, which is which is the dreaded solution. But yeah, I mean, the fans have been here with this club, you know, from day one, going to a stadium that the, the hope is one day we're not going to this stadium, but. Uh, incredible that you travel across the country on a week's notice. There was probably about 500 of them, and they made a great noise throughout the game, and I thought complimented the atmosphere to go with the Timbers Army. I did think it was cool. Aaron Boone, the New York Yankees manager, was here. Really? Yes. I didn't uh, see that. They, they posted that he came to the game, so welcome, Aaron Boone. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Um, and there was a moment after after the game was over, Ronnie Dyla kept up his promise, Yes, which he's done before, <laughs> To get into his skivvies and <laughs> celebrate, uh, he made this promise, he backed it up, and it was pretty epic. Yeah, it was amazing. So actually, I was pretty annoyed because I, I, I left the press box for five minutes and like hours after the game, and it was the moment when he stripped down to his underwear. Now, this is something that he did back in 2009 while managing in Norway with Storms Goodset. 
and he basically said, if we avoid relegation, I will strip down to my underwear in celebration. Then, because this was reported about when he got hired ahead of 2020, uh, a fan at a fan event asked Ronnie Dyla the same question, will you do it if we win the title? He said yes. After the game, he also said, if we keep winning, I will keep doing things like this. So, a man of his word, and it was pretty bold because it was raining sideways in a very cold temperatures today in Portland. So, fair play to him because I'm not sure I would have had the gumption considering the conditions. Not me, man, but I hope Aaron Boone took notes <laughs> and, and someone like pressures him to do that if the Yankees ever win anything. But that'd be quite a tradition for the Yankee NYCFC broader organization to start. You know, the soccer world never really stops, but this is about as close to it. You know, it's funny because we'll keep doing the podcast here and uh, you know, the Premier League obviously goes very hard through the holiday season and end of January, we're you know, going to be doing U.S. Uh, World Cup qualifying again. So I do think, though, it feels like at the end of something a little bit here because we're able to come together and, and see each other and record together and travel to Portland. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts with you. Look forward to doing more of them, but uh, thanks so much. I think this is the... Is this the first time we've sat next to each other and watched a game together? I believe so, because the last two yeah. times that we saw, we, we were in Cincinnati, we were in Nashville. I was in the stands. So, uh, yeah, this was this was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, don't, I also know that we didn't talk about the uh, circumstance before the game, the pomp and the circumstance, <laughs> uh, which became more circumstance than pomp when uh, the inflatable MLS Cup <laughs> trophy was dislodged and, and therefore that, that plan was aborted. Uh, the win, the sideways win in rain uh, prevented the tarp for the MLS cup logo to be pulled off the field the the, the pregame was a sight to behold <laughs> it was quite a comedy in in a way that if you only if you love mls you yeah. can appreciate because the start of the game gets delayed on abc because of this interminable end as all college basketball or basketball games oh, can God. be uh, occasionally and so that's so tedious that, i'm not kidding you like in 12 real minutes two seconds in a women's college basketball game came off the clock it was impossible to watch and like I, I understand right like the networks have to like have a programming grid they try and fill as many hours in the day as possible with live sports but I also I kind of understand the feeling of hey man it's MLS Cup Final can we like you know have a half hour pregame show and like build it up as a big event not like have a have a lead in beforehand but uh, I'm, I'm sure the commentary with John Champion and Taylor Twelman was great and I saw their post game coverage they, they, they stayed with it after even despite the fact that it went to penalties but yeah it was, it was one of those where it's like I can't, I can't can't believe that so much time is coming so little time is coming off the clock in this college basketball game it's such a uniquely like there's so many uniquely american <laughs> soccer things between ronnie dialis stripping down to his pants and and you know be, being late to the start of a, a title a, a, a cup final because a sporting event in another cup, amateur sport ran over it was it was so many things to love about this league in this game <laughs> Another MLS season is done. There won't be a very long off season because the next one starts earlier than usual due to the World Cup being at a weird time next November. But uh, we'll still have plenty to talk about and keep pushing ahead with these podcasts. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Trent. Now, here's my interview with Michael McCambridge and Neil Atkinson. Our guests now are two good friends of mine and of each other. Michael McCambridge is an Austin, Texas-based author of several books, including America's Game, The Epic Story of How Pro Football Captured a Nation, 
Neil Atkinson is a Liverpool-based writer, broadcaster, and film producer who's well-known for his work with the Anfield Rap. They have co-authored a terrific new book of letters to each other during Liverpool's Premier League winning 2019-20 season called Red Letters. Two fervent Liverpool FC supporters correspond through the epic season that wouldn't end, for which I was lucky to write the foreword. Gentlemen, congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us, Grant. There's so much in this book that I love, including not just the sport of soccer football, but also the lost art of letter writing. You've got cultural commentary. You've got male friendship. Could you explain, just to start, how this book came together? I was uh, approached by the Liverpool Echo, who were starting a new sort of segment, a bit of an offshoot of the Liverpool Echo, uh, by a guy who works for Reach, who sort of oversees Liverpool sports, and another guy who oversees sports full stop for Reach, or did then. Uh, these these guys were, were Chris Walsh and, and John Birchall, and they had the idea uh, of me, uh, because I'd never really written for the, for the, for, for the Echo or for, for Reach in any sort of long-form way, doing something a little bit different and taking the opportunity not to just do sort of an immediate match reaction stuff which is what a lot of my writing is for the Anfield rap uh, or even uh, stuff that was authored instead it was this idea of an exchange of ideas and they said you know would you like to do that and I said well yeah and they, they said well do you know anyone and I, I immediately threw Michael's name in the frame and Chris had read America's game like I had and absolutely loved it and Chris was was stunned about the idea that that Michael was possible uh, in this and then from there they then it, it, we approached Michael, um, and they, uh, Chris and Michael, hit it off. Uh, we all got to sort of meet up in one of Liverpool's pre-season games and have a bit of a chat about it. But that was that was how we ended up. We ended up deciding that this was a thing that we could collaborate on and committing to the idea that we were going to do a full season around this LFC stories idea. And both of you are really good at toggling back and forth from the local angle on Liverpool FC to the global angle. Michael, what interests you the most about Neil's local angle? And then I'm going to ask Neil what interests him the most about Michael's global perspective from Texas. I think the first thing that jumps to mind is when you are on a different continent following Liverpool, it's easy to see all the games because here in America, it's as you've pointed out in your writing, Grant, it's easier to watch the Premier League in the United States of America than it is in England. Uh, but the other thing was... Um, Neil's experience being right there in the stadium was so unmediated. There were things he would see that I wouldn't. There were things that I would see because of television that he wouldn't. Um, early that season, the, the great flare-up between Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane and the sort of, you know, the, the drama, the telenovela that was going on over, uh-oh, they're mad at each other. Neil, in the, in the grounds wasn't even aware of it until after he he left the grounds and went to went to tape the show so that's the there is a little bit of that uh of that dichotomy going on and that that was interesting what i'm always interested in so when we met michael it was actually at it was a blisteringly hot day and it was at a tailgate and firstly, tailgating is not something that happens in a Premier League football. You know, the idea of, of tailgating at Burnley away in the driving rain in February does not appeal to anyone in any way, shape or form. But the other thing about this is what I'm all overseas supporters and Michael's uniquely placed and, and, and lots of people that Michael watches the games with become characters within the book, which I like a great deal because I've all, I'm always intrigued by supporters clubs. 
And whenever we go elsewhere in the world, especially to the United States, because I think it's an interesting thing, I think it's in part what people in the United States buy into when they buy into the Premier League up to a point, and most definitely with Liverpool, is they buy into this this idea of of being part of part of a collective, and that's football and seeing soccer as being something that that is hugely social and becomes things that people can have in common with one another and bond over in a way that I think I think is missed uh, and I think it doesn't happen in other sports in general and I certainly don't think it happens in other sports to an extent in 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 the United Kingdom or anything like that I think you end up almost being part of a conspiracy being part of a collaboration you know as, as a supporters club as, and for a long period of time and Mike, Michael details it really well as part of being a soccer fan in the United States to be a soccer fan in the United States felt like you were part of a conspiracy uh, and that I think that sort of still stems into the way in which the supporters clubs view one another and view the time that they spend together and as someone who, who fundamentally thinks football really and, and, and the COVID aspect of the book really drew this out in the end football really only makes sense as a social pursuit it only really makes sense as something that's shared and something that people can come together around that you know you're not too far away from as with all sports but but I think especially football being able to reduce it to, to, to 22 humans running around after the ball you need the other things to give it context and how that happens across the globe but as I say I think there is something relatively specific to an extent to United States supporters clubs because of the perception of soccer it's not quite the same for the Madrid Reds the Madrid Reds are a conspiracy against the fact that they're in the same city as Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid Madrid and they love Liverpool whereas this is about as has been about a whole sport and I think it's absolutely fascinating how all of that interplays and all, all of that interacts and where the differences are and where the similarities are and what people actually want to get from this. Michael you like me are also a lifelong fan of the Kansas City Chiefs NFL team and it just so happened that your teams Liverpool and the Chiefs both won league titles for the first time in decades in the same year. How did winning those titles feel similar for you as a fan? And how did they feel different from each other? It felt like in the writing, in this exchange of letters, Neil and I were both on this epic quest. And it just, I can remember when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, I was trying to write about how that felt while also making it somehow pertinent to the people who were reading it who did not care at all about the Kansas City Chiefs and the Vince Lombardi trophy. And the thing I just seized on was, you know, it, it it's worth it. There is a sense, and I think Neil felt this way too, that when you finally reach the peak, that all of those times, you know, in Neil's case, the nil-nil bore fests away at, at Wolves, or in, in the case of Chiefs fans, you know, years where... Tyler Thigpen or Brody Croyle or Damon Heward is your quarterback and you're looking at the screen or you're at the stadium wondering why do we do this to ourselves and the answer is those moments of boredom and sluggishness and despair and outright heartbreak to hang in there as a fan and lean into those and experience those makes the moments like the fight back against Barcelona the Champions League season, and finally winning the Premier League, um, it finally makes those, it redeems everything else that came before it, and the pleasure is greater because you, you've you spent so much of your adult life obsessing over it and being disappointed. Is that fair, Neil? I think it is. I think the 
the idea of the quest, I think, matters. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that are really important around Liverpool winning the league that I think do mark it out a teeny bit differently from from the Chiefs, and it's the existence of cups and European competitions. I've never liked the sort of the the framing of Liverpool winning the league as, as in that sort of England supporter line of thirty years of hurt. Right. Never liked it at all, and the reason the reason why is is solely because you know it really didn't hurt. Let's be crystal clear about this. There were some fantastic times watching Liverpool up to and including by that point two European Cups and two other European Cup finals, which, and again, the other thing that matters in amongst this, you know, there, there are very few football clubs in the world, but especially in England, who, who have the opportunity to even get near anything like that, you know, and, and on top of that, there's numerous domestic Cups and numerous runners-up places for Liverpool in the title. And while the runners-up places hurt, you still get the adventure, you still get to go into the games, you still get what it all feels feels like. So I think that that's that that's a slightly important sort of difference in that. That's not to say that there aren't adventures around the NFL, but there is this one overwhelming yeah. focus. No, that's a good point. That drags everything along with it all the way. I think the other sort of key thing that I took as Michael was absolutely enjoying that was is is very is very clear idea of no, this is you will not be disappointed when you get there. Now, I I never thought I would be, but some people began to wonder if they would be, not least because the distance Liverpool were clear at the top of the at the top of the title race. You know, there's there is Liverpool supporters. I think all had their moments where they went from feeling like everything was the most intense version of jeopardy you've ever lived through in your life and then almost as in a digital way almost like switching it off with the way in which that title race went you realize this is done and dusted and it, and it normally that happens as a gradual process and for most teams that happens as a gradual process but with Liverpool's history people were would say saying to themselves I cannot think they've won this league I cannot think they've won this league and then would suddenly one thing would happen whether it's Salah scoring against Manchester United Liverpool winning 4-0 against Leicester whichever moment everyone's got their own individual one although a lot of them are obviously shared but there's a moment where everyone goes this league is won and it, it, there's no space between the two normally that's a spectrum and there is no spectrum here effectively everyone went from I cannot believe it's going to be true to say this has happened and again that doesn't quite happen in the same way so there's this idea of well, when you do finally get there and the mathematics means that it's done will it therefore then feel different feel less special because it's not a one-off game in quite the same way but Michael was adamant it will feel the same it will feel like the thing has finally been done and he was absolutely right just to add one one point to that I think this process that you go through in experiencing a season, each, each year is distinctive, each season is distinctive, but what Neil and I were talking about as, as this remarkable season goes on was the specifics of Liverpool. But the other things we were grappling with were, What's it like to be a fan? Why do you give so much emotional, psychic energy to the process of following a team? Whether the team is Liverpool, the Kansas City Chiefs, or the Harlem Globetrotters, whatever the case may be. But the thing for me that made it more interesting is when the games stop, when the pandemic takes over, and then there is, in the midst of this dream campaign, literally nothing. And we don't know what's going to happen. Then we are forced to ask completely different questions, which is not why do we do this, but what happens when we can't do this? How does that feel? What does this happen to the, what, what, may, what happens to the season that we're experiencing? And what do we do with our lives? Is there anything, is there anything else that provides the same combination of urgency and excitement and belonging and quest as sports? And I think 
my experience and, and uh, Neil's as well was there were certainly plenty of things to do. We were happy to read books and, and rewatch episodes of Mad Men and, and, and things like that. But there was nothing that really substituted for 1 p.m. on a Saturday or 3 p.m. on a Sunday and the game being played. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally feel you on that. Uh, in, in parts, some of my favorite parts of the book actually are the, the pandemic letters. And I, I wonder, do each of you actually write letters much in real life? And, and how did you approach this lost art of, of writing letters to each other? I mean, I, I don't uh, write letters. I will occasionally keep in touch with people through what we can sort of frame as relatively long emails, people I've known from sort of years back, not in a sort of a round robinish way. I, it's a strange thing in that I sort of see the match reviews that I do around Liverpool. Actually, it's been a little bit informed by this, but then this was a little bit informed by them, where I try to keep them as directly personal as possible. Um, I'm very much writing to someone. Sometimes I know who that someone is. Occasionally, it's actually Michael. Sometimes, um, sometimes I'm writing them, and I've got a sense of who that person is. Like there's a there's, there's a group of people I know of whom I might be sort of directing it at. But I trying to sort of personalise that is 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 something that I've been I've been trying to do within the the, the writing around football for for a while almost since since I started doing it in in 2014. Trying to have that sort of you know, I'm, we're, we're sharing a world here. Moment is is something that I'm, I've been trying to do with that because ultimately, match report in the classic sense writing is 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 redundant and difficult in an era where effectively, you know, everyone broadly can have watched the match immediately, so everyone can see the game now. So you're not you're not you're not really every now and again for an away game if you're at and you'll notice certain things. It's important. I like to bring them through, but on the whole, you know, everyone not just not just has seen the incidents that you're talking about, but has seen them from twenty different angles if they need to. And might as as per the salad and money thing from earlier on, might quite literally be better informed than you are. So if someone is quite literally better informed than you are, then don't try and inform them again. Give them something else and something new and something different. So that's been something that, that's been in there for a while. This really gave me an opportunity to bring it out, but then also bring out longer form conversation. The idea that we could investigate something to an extent in one letter. Michael can acknowledge it and say, I'm going to come back to you a week later on that one, was something which I think is really rather different in that it's not just as simple as a linear exchange of views. At times, there's, there's rolling themes that get picked back up two, three, four times over the course of the year-long correspondence in different ways and then get approached from different angles. And, and to me, that was a really interesting thing to get the freedom to be able to do, that you don't really, first and foremost, even as a, as a weekly columnist, you wouldn't have the freedom to do that, that you don't get to do within match reviews, but also the idea that it's an exchange of information. It's not just, you know, and I like writing to find out what I think about the world, but it's not just, here are my views, reader, absorb them. It's that you get to see that exchange and that back and forth, and I think it's a really interesting thing michael how did you approach writing letters well it was part of it was liberating because the books i normally write are very research intensive like i was um i got up this morning and i've got um like 90 library books on this next on this next book i'm researching and it's just overwhelming and this was this was an opportunity to i'd already done the research i went to the pub I watched the game. I agonized over it. Okay, now I can sit down and write. So that was there was there was a freeing quality of that. But there was also to Neil's point about writing personally. I think for me sports 
often gets mixed up with music and movies and books. And I will make these, um, I will sometimes make these associations that to people who aren't sports fans, if you were to say something that, oh, um, this Leonard Cohen novel reminded me of how Liverpool's season is going right now, they would look at you as though you were probably insane. But one of the great one of the great freedoms about this was Neil understood and picked up on it and knew exactly what I was talking about. And that was, for me, one of the most satisfying things about this correspondence. Have you two had a chance to see each other in person at all since nope. that tailgate at Notre Dame? Nope. No, not no. not since then, and not since Liverpool have won the league. But then there's still, you know, this would be one of my things all the way through this this season, the one that we're currently living through now, and in general, is every single time you go to Anfield, and it'll be the same for for, for a lot of sports grounds around the world. But every single time you go to Anfield, it's someone's first game back. You know, this is we were hoping to get over to the United States during the season as part of the Anfield rap stuff. There's the idea, and I think Liverpool may well tour the United States next next summer. I'm basing that on no information at all, other than my own guess. But it, it wouldn't surprise me if they chose to do that. So that might be an opportunity to see Michael and to see other people. But it's always someone's first game back at the minute, and even now, obviously, with the the shift again uh, around around the virus and, and the pandemic and what actually means what and where are we up to and what the science saying. These things are. There's still a, there should still be, and there should still be perceived to be a a wondrousness to them, a specialness, something that was was lost and has been found again. And in amongst a lot of that, you know, there's 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 friends of mine, quite literally, who were just over in in Dublin, who unfortunately I was away a couple of weeks ago, and they were over for a game, and I didn't get to see them then, and I still haven't seen them. You know, it's we remain, I think, somewhat scattered uh, a little bit more than I think we would have liked to have been. And so the idea of, and it's why it's very kind of you to have us on, Grant, you know, the idea of, for instance, we'd have loved to have done a remarkably self-important transatlantic book tour, the sort of thing that you very rarely get to do, where Michael comes over and we do we do Liverpool and London and Dublin and Edinburgh and we go and see all these people and we have this fantastic time. And then a couple of weeks later, I pop over and we do Austin and we do Boston and we do New York. That would have been absolutely perfect. But just even planning still, events like that is 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 fraught. And obviously on the, the right. shoestring of, 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 of what our budget would be, it's even more fraught. And that's most definitely not a criticism of the very generous publishers at the University of Nebraska. It's just the reality of, of where the world is. Yeah. Their book is Red Letters. You should definitely check it out. Couple more questions for you. Um, how are you feeling about Liverpool this season? I think that this is one of the one of the best Liverpool teams I've ever seen. One of the best soccer teams I've ever seen. And certainly one of the most entertaining and enjoyable to watch Liverpool teams ever. There is a sense that um, offensively, this side is hitting all the gears. What I what I haven't sensed yet is that defensive solidity that Liverpool had in the 2019-2020 season. There was a point uh, there. Um, I think it was November, December, when I wrote to Neil, "How many?" How many games can you win two to one? How many one goal wins can you possibly have during a season? And I think uh, one of the great things about this season's Liverpool is they've they they've won quite a lot of games going away, which is one of the reasons that Saturday's um, winner in Origi time against Wolves was particularly satisfying. But I'm I'm um, 
I'm very bullish about this year's uh, Liverpool side, even more than I was two years ago because I was still terrified that something was going to go wrong and and Neil was was out front in that and knew how good that team was. At the the same time, this is a three-team race, not a two-team race, and it's... uh, I don't think it's going to get settled anytime soon. It's not going to be done and dusted in in February or March. Yeah, well, I, I mean, on on the idea, it's not going to be done and dusted in February or March. I'm not. I'm still a very a slight slight skeptic that it will prove to be by February or March. By February, uh, a three team race. I think it's between the two northwest sides, um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that Chelsea, there's bit. I think Chelsea can still grow, and they can still prove me wrong. To, to be clear, but. I think they they're the ones who clearly have the most to work on. Um, I think it's quite a marked thing. I think even with much talk of the defensive solidity, what we've actually been talking about at times is is, is phenomenal goalkeeping performances. And then at the weekend, you just got to see what that looks like when it's inverted. To be honest with you, um, and 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 from there, then Chelsea did not look anywhere near the force that they had have done. But you know, even the best sides can lose three two at West Ham. There is a for me, this side's just just remarkable and electrifying to watch it feels like a side built for a group of people who never got to watch football in person for 12 months it really does like it feels as though you know if it, it, it feels a, it feels a little bit like I mean to use a reference that Michael will absolutely love Springsteen coming back and doing stadiums after having told the ghost of Tom Jode <laughs> you know it feels really like this is let's go out there and be as crowd pleasing as we possibly can be because the best thing we could be because it was horrible when we didn't have crowds so let's absolutely let's play the hits let's go 100 miles an hour let's play them fast and get out and make as many people go as go as berserk as we possibly can and that's what they've done so far this season I think they've got a great chance of of winning of, of doing the, the the big two I think they've got a great chance of doing either of them I think they've got a pretty solid chance of doing both of them the the, the season 18-19 the one that precedes the book is a campaign where Liverpool get 97 points and win a Champions League uh, and and make a Champions League final. It's really important. You know they play all the games if you know what I mean, and they play them at a level that's high enough to, to, to at that level of excellence. And I think the side's capable of doing that from now until the end of the season. You know, post match against Wolves after the Origi winner, you got Salah tweeting it in our hands, which is hysterically funny because it's true. But you know, it's not the sort. You know, that's the sort of thing you say when it's seven points. Um, when you know when, when there's three, so you're seven points ahead with three games to go. It's not the sort of thing that often gets said at this point. But then I remember in eighteen nineteen when we went to Wolves the, the manager came out and said we might need 106 points to win this league and we're capable of getting them and I think that that's where I, I feel like Liverpool and City are capable from now until the end of the campaign of hitting that rarefied air that City hit between 2017 and 2019 and Liverpool hit between 2018 and 2020 and it feels to me like they're both capable of going into that stratosphere and I don't quite think Chelsea are so I'm I'm feeling great about Liverpool and it's just phenomenal to get to go and watch them and the one thing that is different between now and then is that Liverpool have the best player in the world so when you get to go and watch Liverpool you are watching the best current footballer on the planet, the best one, and that is that is something that's that's relatively rare in my Liverpool supporting life. You can have a conversation around John Barnes, you know, up until when I was about nine or ten. You can have a conversation about Dalglish. You can have a conversation about uh, Sunes, and maybe to a slight extent, because it's a bit of a funnier period. You can have a conversation about Gerrard and Gerrard and Torres were electrifying to watch. But the idea that I think it is sort of widely accepted that right now, and by right now we mean the whole of this season. This fellow's the best player in the world. And he's there. Last question for you both. 
when you look back at this experience of writing letters to each other, when you hold that book in your hand, what stands out to you the most? Uh, for me, it's the it's the the grappling with the clambering of the hill. And what I said before about that shift of what I love about the book is it's a real reminder. Everyone, well, not everyone, there's a lot of Liverpool supporters who for a variety of reasons have acted in the aftermath of this league win as though that league win was always inevitable. And what I love about the book is it makes crystal clear through mine and, and Michael's different forms of anxiety shared to one another <laughs> just how many times this thing was genuinely on a knife edge. And when you, you know, when you beat Bournemouth in March just before a pandemic to go 26 points clear I think it was the next day Manchester City lose to a 40 yard Scott McTominay shot the day after we beat Bournemouth you know at that point it never it feels like well it could never have been on a knife edge that doesn't make any sense but it was and it was and it was in those early in those early weeks and it was on a knife edge because what Liverpool were doing was going at a pace that I think really rattled Manchester City and made them uncomfortable and made it harder for them to play football you know Liverpool go to Leicester and win 4-0 on the next night Manchester City go to Wolves go 2-0 up get a man sent off and get beat 3-2 you know this is the idea they were all watching the Liverpool game last night after they come back from Qatar thinking oh now they might be weak and then they go to the third best team in the country at that point Leicester and win 4-0 but we all they came back from Qatar and everyone went no one knows what's going to happen next there was jeopardy and there was a knife edge and this book is about that and that is I'm really pleased it exists for that reason that no, no there were no fate accomplices here what happens in 1920 was not inevitable Liverpool had to be brilliant and had to show real courage to get it done I think for me it is so much about sports is to go back to, to Neil's point earlier about that sense of community that social aspect of it but if you, you know, if sports is, or if your love for a team is kind of this, this inoperable tumor that it is for Neil and I, you know, if it's just something that is part of you, there is such a great sense of being able to share not just the disappointment and the excitement, but just the weekly sense of wonder and to, to see Mohamed Salah do what he does. To see James Milner, who has been around so long, I think of him as my age, and I'm 58. <laughs> to see James Milner launch himself into the goal mouth for this magnificent um, clearance off the line, to be able to then come back and say to Neil in writing at, you know, two, two or 3,000 words, did you freaking see that? Was was one of the great um, was one of the great joys of this process, and I'm glad it found its way between hard covers. Michael McCambridge and Neil Atkinson are the authors of Red Letters. Two fervent Liverpool FC supporters correspond through the epic season that wouldn't end. Congratulations, and thanks to you both for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Grant. It was a pleasure. Thank you, sir, and thanks for writing the forward. Our guest now is James Erskine. He's the director of the new film, The End of the Storm, an inside look at Liverpool's Premier League winning season of 2019-20, which appeared at the Kicking and Screening Film Festival and is now available on Paramount+. Plus. He also directed the six-part Amazon series, This is Football, One Night in Turin, and the documentary Billy on Billy Holiday, among many other films. James, congratulations on this film, and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed what you did here with Liverpool. You got some tremendous one-on-one -on -one access 
to people at the club for this film. Jurgen Klopp, Virgil van Dyke, Jordan Henderson, Sadio Mane, Allison, several others. How did this documentary come about and how were you able to get that kind of access? So yeah, so the film the film came about because I'd made a series called This Is Football and the lead film about in that series was uh, a very powerful film about the Rwandan genocide that was told through the lens of three Liverpool fans and how soccer had become a unifying force for the country and also had allowed families and, and surrogate families to, to build back together again. And that had come to the attention of Liverpool Football Club, of course, because we had some involvement with them at the time. And, and they, uh, you know, they had, had admired it and it was a different kind of filmmaking that really saw the emotions of the fans at the heart of it. So, you know, we began conversations with them and said, how do we make the film where we we look at that emotion in 360 across a significant season? So we see it, you know, from the terraces, you know, from fans watching around the world, but also from the manager and the players and try to sort of unpack the emotional connection that goes all the way from from the dugout to, to, to Detroit or... or, 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 or uh, Beijing. Yeah, one of the things I really loved about the This Is Football series was that ability to interview people, fans around the world and do storytelling through them. That Rwanda episode is incredible. Uh, and um, and you, that, you see that here in this film, The End of the Storm, where you go to different parts of the world and, and interview fans from Liverpool as they're experiencing this historic season. How did you pick those people that you spoke to? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually. Again, it was sort of inspired by This Is Football and, and another film which I made for that, which was about uh, Lionel Messi. And we had we had filmed with fans around the world to try and understand Messi as a football player and what he gave. And so we sort of adopted that model to this. With And so we went to Rachel, who was the producer on it, went to lots of Liverpool fan clubs around the world. And we sort of looked at a map and said, OK, how do we cover off the world, the planet, how do we cover off planet football here, you know, and how do we look for fans that can both tell a different part of the story and, and, and connect to connect together, you know, and it was interesting because obviously in the making of this film, this is the year, this is the pandemic year, you know, so actually there was two things that ended up unifying everybody. One was the, uh, uh, the emotional connection that they share as football fans and fans of Liverpool FC, but the second one was obviously the pandemic. And so in a way, it made the narrative much more rich, you know, and that, you know, and, and more resonant and saw that the power of sport, you know, to unify people sort of like, I mean, sport is something that unifies people like nothing else. And I think that's also something that we wanted to communicate in this, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, in the film, we talk about how Klopp talks about how they change the dressing room routine to accommodate Mo Salah and, and Sadio Mane as, as Muslims so that they can prepare um, for the game in a, in a slightly different way. And and that idea, you know, is a really elevated idea and I think comes from someone like Klopp who's also, you know, a religious person, but, you know, that, that football can sort of extend in a way that, that nothing nothing can and give people joy in a way, joy in a shared experience in a way that nothing else nothing else can. Klopp is such a fascinating, unique figure. I've had the, the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times over the years. What did you learn about Jurgen Klopp from working with him on this film? Klopp is an extraordinary person to interview. There's been a couple of people 
in my life that I've interviewed. I've interviewed thousands of people. There's only a couple of people that stand out that actually always give you an answer to the question that you've asked, right? Not not the answer that they want to give, you know. And I think, you know, and can we really try and communicate with the interviewer, you know, as a, as a as a person, a human being, and that's what's that's one of the incredible things about Klopp is is hu- is humanity, you know, and that's very much expressed, you know, on the on the sidelines where he's so energetic and so passionate about football, you know. Sometimes comes in press conferences, less so, I think, you know, because that's the sort of vaguely antagonistic uh, um, situation, you know. I mean, no great artist likes to have their work criticised, especially not three minutes after they've just finished it. Uh, 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 and it hasn't quite gone to plan, you know, and yet football managers are expected to stand up and defend any question you know, on a canvas that they haven't even seen or reviewed. So, you know, so I think, you know, what, what I was able to sort of do and sort of spend time with him was to sort of get get deeper inside the man and find somebody that's, you know, very open and very willing, actually, to talk about it. I mean, you know, he's much more sort of express... You know, I've interviewed Pep Guardiola. He's a very different sort of character to interview. You know, Pep's, Pep's great, but he's very much a football person. You know, Klopp is, like... He just has a great mind, you know, and a great connect- and understands the connectivity at the heart of the experience of sport. You know, he doesn't really talk. It's interesting because you know, if you talk to him properly, he doesn't talk about football at all. You right. Know? right. He's, that's right. the that's the last thing he wants to talk about. You know, <laughs> and I, yet he's I, obsessed I, by it. You know. So. Yeah, I, I'm from a craft perspective. I, I'm always interested. You've done thousands of interviews. When you do an interview. How do you go about it, and, and and what are you seeking to to get out of it? Yeah, I mean, what I'm what I'm seeking to get out of it is a conversation, to be honest, and not an interview at all. I mean, I think that's you know, especially when you're trying to make long form documentary, it matters more to me that there's you know, an engaging conversation happening which will convey on screen than it is hitting off a specific number of points. I don't want the interviewee to feel. Obviously, if it's a politician, it's a different thing, and you want to really nail them, you know, and you need to get them to say a very specific point, you know, or, or some other bad guy. But really, I think the joy of it is to be able to have a long conversation with somebody and, and explore ideas and, you know, feel that life. So that's, that's always what I'm trying to, trying to do. I hate doing interviews in, like, a chronological order. I would much rather, you know, throw, throw it around and see, see where it lands and, and find the connections, you know. Yeah. You are not a Liverpool fan, and I'm wondering, how did that influence your making of this film? Well, aside from praying that they might lose a few key games to Man City, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, how did, I'm, not, I'm not a Liverpool fan, no, but I mean, I admire and respect Liverpool, and actually, in a way, sometimes it's, it's probably easier to, to make a film like this if you're not a fan, you know, because you can clearly see... I want to make this film for all football fans, not just Liverpool fans. Liverpool fans are kind of, you know, I don't want to take them for granted, but, you know, I know I'm already making it for them. But what I'd love is fans of other teams to come to it and say and learn something about Liverpool, but also learn something about their own connection with football. And they can feel these, they can feel these resonances with their, with their own team, perhaps. I mean, Liverpool is kind of unique because it has, a, it has this unique setting and I grew up not far from there and... You know, it has this sort of history, the history of, you know, the tragic history and also the, the sort of 
for, for you know the sort of nostalgia the nostalgia around Liverpool is 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 what's you know made it into a sort of global brand in a way that you do get I suppose a little bit with Man United but not quite in the same way there isn't that sense of community and bonding so so yeah for me it was it was it was I I I, I, I would have not wanted to make a, a, a film about Man City because it would be too much I mean, one thing about whether it's films or book projects, when you follow a team for a season, you don't know what's going to happen. And when you're making a film and you're investing in this project at the start of the 2019-20 season for Liverpool, you don't know that they're going to win their first English title in 30 years. How much risk comes with that? And... In the end, it paid off. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing, I sort of asked the question of, you know, how did you sort of know that season to pick? But actually, the more I think about it, I sort of feel like I make those calc- I make those risks the whole time when I'm making a film. How do I know if a film's going to be any good? You know, there's a, how do I know it's going to reach an audience? How do I know it's going to work? In a way, I don't know. We don't know lots of things, but, you know, we can have a hunch that it might work and also be ready to adjust our story if it doesn't work. I'm not sure how it would have worked if Liverpool hadn't won, but it was an interesting season in lots of ways because they ran away with it so quickly, you know, and actually there was a point where we were like, this is going to be really boring. You know, it's just, uh, it's just Mo Salah banging them in every week and nothing else is happening in the film. They haven't lost. Can they just lose a game so that we can make something a bit more edgy? You know, obviously, you know, Watford helped us with that a little bit later on, but, um, uh, yeah, so 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 we didn't know, but after the previous season and they'd run Man City close, uh, you know, it, it seemed like this was the opportunity. You know, Man City, it would have been really hard for them to have won it a third time and gone for the Champions League. And that desire, that need, that investment, their players at their peak. You know, I don't think Liverpool today is the same team as it was two years ago. You know, for for various reasons. I, you know, I think they won't win the league this season. Um, but I think they're still a good football club. But, you know, that, that front three and their pomp, which they were, you know, a couple of seasons ago together playing, you know, was, was, was sort of extraordinary. And the leadership of Henderson and Henderson playing and, and Van Dijk being so present and such a big influence, you know, and having come in and being such a big presence gave them a sort of charisma that was, you know, three seasons in, it feels less, uh, less exciting, I think. You, know. you mentioned the COVID pandemic basically shut down the world during the season you were filming. How did that impact your work on the film? Well, it impacted it pretty significantly because we didn't know if this... I mean, the COVID, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic came, coming in was something we sensed, obviously, coming in, and we talked about how we were going to deal with it. But um, obviously, nobody knew what it was until the reality of it happening. And, and once, once uh, you know, the lockdowns had started occurring, we didn't know if the season would end, you know? Um, and that was going to be pretty challenging, you know, and we couldn't film and we couldn't do anything for a number of months, um, which was, um, you know, frustrating. But I think we felt that we felt that they would, this, the football would start again, you know, and we felt confident that it would. It just meant that when it did start, we had to be much more uh, further back with our cameras and, you know, follow extensive protocols and everything was really much more difficult. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we managed to do it and we managed to continue to shoot around the world, you know, with, with local crews and, you know, so. Wow. What was your favourite moment 
personally doing this film? My favorite moment of doing the film was probably finishing it. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what my favorite moment was. I mean, my interview, I, I don't know. I mean, interviewing Klopp was, you know, pretty special, I would say, you know, uh, um, the really big sit-down interview for that. Putting together the music I loved, you know, we were quite specific with our music track and, you know, we were very fortunate to get Lana Del Rey to re-record You'll Never Walk Alone and sort of we put that together, I think, because of the pandemic, I think we had that recording, it was done in eight different countries, you know, she did the vocals in Los Angeles, the composer was in Ireland, the pianist was in London, the orchestra was in East Germ Eastern Europe somewhere. There was a choir, two choirs, and yeah, it was kind of crazy. But it was it was good to have that sort of, to be able to deliver that sort of, you know, extra special sort of moment. The film is called The End of the Storm. It's an inside look at Liverpool's Premier League winning season of 2019-2020. It appeared at the Kicking and Screening Film Festival. It's now available on Paramount+. Plus. James Erskine, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank James Erskine, Michael McCambridge, and Neil Atkinson, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription, and I really appreciate your support. See you next time.